If you or a loved one has had thoughts of self-harm, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline by dialing 988 or visiting suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Okay, so Rob, why are you in my bed again? Uh, my bed was shaking, like there was a lot of uh, scratching noises coming from up above. So I really didn't want to be alone, especially in that big ass room. Yeah, you know, I've been hearing stuff too. It sounds like there's like rats in the attic or something, but I put down traps and they're not like going off. So I don't think it's rats, but there's something up there. Yeah, and I, I went up there with a candle, you know, because there's no... I didn't have a flashlight. I didn't take my phone with me. And that candle went like super high. Like, you know, those lighters that you mess with and you can make the flames go really high. Well, the candle did that. And then it just went out and I got the hell out of Dodge. Yeah, this is, a, I don't know. I think renting this house in Georgetown, we got like for a steal. And I'm wondering why the rent's so cheap. Yeah. And you know, the crazy thing is we never think to ask like what happened in this house or something like that. Yeah, we just kind of fly by the seat of our pants. Yeah, as per usual. Yeah, no, well, you're welcome to sleep here, but I don't know, this this place gives me the hibbity-jibbities, I'll be honest with you. Yeah, me too. I, it's like I, I'm back to childhood where I don't want to do anything by myself, especially go up in the attic again. No, I would not do that. No, I'll just... Hmm, no, you know what? When I go to check on the traps, I'll take you with me. Yeah. Um, you know, we never yeah. should have messed with that Ouija board either. Uh, I don't think that was really good. No. Yeah, I agree with you. And that, you know, I'm starting to think like that Captain Howdy, I'm starting to like give some credence that maybe he's a real thing. It's not just a joke. Right. And uh, when Twisted Sister did that song um, on their album, Stay Hungry, Stay Away from Captain Howdy. I mean, they're... There was really something to that. Yeah, this whole thing is freaking me out. I mean, if this keeps on, I'm thinking we need to call an exorcist. <sighs> yeah, we're going to need an old priest and a young priest. Hopefully hot. Somewhere between science and superstition, there is another world. <laughs> the world of darkness. expected it. Nobody believed it. And nothing could stop it. 
are no experts. You probably know as much about possession as most priests. Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. I'm telling you that that thing upstairs isn't my daughter. Now, I want you to tell me that you know for a fact that there's nothing wrong with my daughter except in her mind. You tell me you know for a fact that an exorcism wouldn't do any good. You tell me that! The one hope. The only hope. The exorcist. All right, all you Midnight Mass Preacher Cast fans, we are here on this episode covering The Exorcist from 1973. So dim the lights. This is going to be a creepy one. Um, this, I believe, was Rob's pick, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I can't remember. It, was it mine or was it a mutual pick? I, I don't know anymore. I think you brought it up, but I was like gung-ho to do it because I love this movie, I think, as much as you do. So, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, now it has a runtime of two hours and two minutes and it's rated R. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a reason that it's rated R. <laughs> there is all the, her potty mouth, <laughs> <laughs> but really it's no different than teaching a middle schooler. I'll be honest with you. I really, nothing shocked me. I'm just like, this is another day for me at work. You're desensitized. Um, exactly. And of course, um, that's Rob, my awesome co-host. And I am Mark, uh, your other co-host on Midnight Mass Creature Cast. Uh, so where did you first see this, Rob? Ooh, there's a story connected to this. Oh, I have one too. You go first, my friend. Okay. So you know how you used to talk? Well, not used to, you still talk about certain things like the TV spot scaring the hell out of you. Oh yes, totally. Uh So this one at growing up as a child, my, I think it was my sister's who had watched it first and like I was very young at the time. So probably at around age like seven or eight is when there were TV spots for this. And it was already, you know, later on in the years because mm-hmm. this came yeah. out before I was born. Um, But the TV spots, they just scared the hell out of me, especially mm-hmm. the, uh, the, you know, the head turning and the vomit and, all that stuff. And it's like, geez, I hope, you know, if it happened to her, it could happen to me too. I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to end up like that. Um, and so I stayed away from this movie for quite some time. I don't think I saw it until maybe mid nineties. So I was about maybe 17, 16 or 17 when I first saw this. Interesting. Okay. All right. So (laughs) There was a time when, like, streaming services and cable really didn't exist. Okay, so we got to go back to that time. And where I grew up, for some reason, well, I know what it is. The I think it was like the mayor or someone, I someone in charge of, of the city where I lived was pitting two cable companies against each other, okay? And what he was doing is he was lining his pockets with the bribe money they were each giving him. Ooh. But okay, so so we did not get cable for a very long time. Like we were way behind other people getting cable. But in order to kind of 
I guess, like get viewers to, to, to watch the regular channels that we had, uh, KPLR TV channel 11 would show movies uncut. And they, and that's how they got people to watch their channels. Well, they aired the exorcist one. I think it was a Friday or a Saturday night. Okay. Uncut. I was either in seventh grade or eighth grade because uh, one of my best friends, her name was Jackie. I love her. I wish I could find out where she is right now. I love her so much in like a gay guy kind of way. We were like inseparable. And I was the only boy that her mom would let come over and stay with her while she was gone because <laughs> I everyone wonder knew I was gay. <laughs> it was so safe. But, okay, she had to babysit her little brother named David. Oh, this is your story about the exorcist. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> so we're watching that. And David kept coming out of his bedroom where he was supposed to be sleeping. And, you know, he would like watch glimpses of this. And he was probably your age, Rob, when you were talking about like being seven or eight. He was little. Very okay. little. And I don't know why we got the bright idea to tell him that the exorcist lived in the toilet. So he needed to get back in bed because what that did to this poor child was traumatize him to the point where he could not use the toilet and he just became a bedwetter for a very long time um based on what we did to him but that's how i first saw the exorcist <laughs> i don't i remember you saying the, about telling the poor kid that the exorcist lived in the toilet um but you didn't tell me that he refused to go to the bathroom oh yeah it like seriously traumatized him yeah Holy but God. that's how i first saw I, that's how i actually first saw looking for mr goodbar too channel 11 did the same thing they showed that unedited but anyway, that that was my very first interaction with The Exorcist. Okay. Um, yeah, I was fascinated by this movie. Um, it was terrifying to me, but <laughs> there was also something oddly um, alluring about being possessed by the devil. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I, yeah, I would like <laughs> practice like <laughs> banging my body up and down. And like, you know, shaking my bed to see, you know, <laughs> I was an odd child. Like, I'll be completely honest with you. But yeah, there's something very alluring about, you know, <laughs> being possessed by Satan. <laughs> that says a lot about little fat Mark. I'll tell you that right now. Little fat um, Mark was a Satanist from the start. I kind of was. But yeah, anyways. So, <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. Uh, so, uh, really quick, I was going to get into the people behind this incredible film, if you're okay with that. Let's rock and roll. All right. So, our director is William Friedkin. Um, three films of note. He did The Boys in the Band from 1970. Um, then he would bring us uh, Cruising from 1980 with Al Pacino. Um, and then he would give us The Guardian from 1990. <clears throat> I'm going to get back to Cruising later on. It has plays a part with the film but we'll talk about that later um it was based on the book the exorcist um written by william peter blatty and he would go on to write uh, mr blatty write exorcist three which is an awesome movie and he would also do the ninth configuration um from 1980 which is also a, a fun move a fun film now our oh go ahead i'm sorry you stopped oh, me no i just had one question who wrote the exorcist dominion because i i also love that movie that i don't no. Is that one of the later ones? Yeah, I think like uh, it's from the 90s or 2000s. I can't remember okay. which, but yeah, I, that, I enjoyed that one. Okay, cool. I didn't really go into those because I just did my research for this one, if that makes sense. Oh, I thought it was the same writer for the whole, you know, all of them. No, no, no. He just did um, the, these two, okay. I believe. I believe. I hope I'm not 
talking out turn, but I think it, it's just these he was involved with, I think. Um, and then our uh, <clears throat> 12-year-old uh, demonically possessed child is uh, Reagan McNeil, played by Linda Blair. Um, she would uh, come back in Exorcist 2, and I guess she's also, I haven't seen it, but The Exorcist uh, Believer, um, which is out now, 2023, she reprises her role. Um, a couple of films that I would mention of hers, she was in Summer of Fear from 78, Roller Boogie from 79, because as a gay boy, I loved roller skating. Um, <laughs> she was in Hell Night from 81, which I absolutely love that movie so much. Um, she was in Savage Streets with Linnea Quigley from 84. 88 brought two films of note. I would recommend Witchery, which she did with David Hasselhoff, and then Grotesque. And then in 1990, she would spoof uh, this role in Repossessed with Leslie Nielsen. <laughs> I don't Which, think I saw that? that one. No. Oh, it's a goofy <laughs> one. You should watch it. It's 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 kind of fun. It's got Ned Beatty as like a televangelist, uh, <laughs> like a like a Jim and Tammy Faye character. Oh, Faker. okay. Yeah. <clears throat> and then in, in the film, her mother, uh, who is an actress uh, in the film, uh, is Chris McNeil, and she's played by Ellen Bernstein. And she's known for, in in my mind, she was in Pit Stop from '69 which also stars Sid Haig. Um, she was in the last picture show from 71. She did Alice doesn't live here in 74. And then Requiem for a dream um, from 2000, which if you're a Jennifer Connelly fan, you need to see this one. Now our Jesuit priest, um, who's also a psychiatrist is played by uh, Jason Miller. And in the film, uh, he's fathered Karis, Damien Karras. He also starred in the ninth configuration. He did toy soldiers from 84 he was in The Exorcist 3. He was Patient X in that film. Um, and he did Mommy from 1995. Hmm. Now, we have Max von Sydow in the film. We just covered him in episode 68 when we did Dreamscape because he started in that. I prattled off a whole list of films <laughs> that this gentleman did. Yeah. What I'm going to do here is check out The Night Visitor from 1971 for a really good Max von Sydow film. If you want other films, just give it a listen at the beginning of Dreamscape. Well, I'd rather you listen to the whole thing of Dreamscape, but just if you want to find other Max von Sydow films, I would give that a listen. Um, <clears throat> and then the other person I want to mention really quick is uh, we have an investigator looking into uh, what's going on at the um, Georgetown um, townhome. And uh, that is Lieutenant Kinderman, and he's played by Lee J. Cobb. The only film that I believe I've ever seen by this gentleman that I would recommend that I know of to recommend is uh, 12 Angry Men from 1957. Um, and hmm. that's really the only people in the cast that I was going to delve into. Unless yeah. you had someone else you wanted to cover. Uh, not cover, but like there. OK, so you rounded off the main cast, but there's uh, Kitty Wynn who plays Sharon. I don't know uh, any other movies that this person is in. Um, also the, uh, the German guy that <laughs> Carl, <laughs> yes, yes, who, uh, is constantly being called a Nazi by the dinner party guest. Um, that's, uh, Burke, Burke Dennings. Oh, okay. Okay. He's the director. So Chris is an actress and Burke Dennings, um, kind of plays a major part in the film in a weird way. Uh, but he's her director who also happens to <laughs> drink oh, quite a bit. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, yes. so just uh yeah, I, just those two people really stood out to me. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Yes. Um 
I can't off the top of my head remember, but uh, the actress that plays Sharon, I think she did one other film of note, but I didn't. Like I said, just in order of time and everything, I just kind of stuck to the main people. Um, but I can't think of what the other film was. She's cute as hell. Oh, and she's in The Exorcist too. Oh, The Heretic? Yeah. Yeah, I bet she'd slap you if you said that out loud. Why? Uh, oh, have you seen Exorcist too? No, I haven't. Oh, <laughs> like i said i well I, my friend i'm gonna make you watch that we're gonna do that on the show and you'll never talk about it ever again oh um, here we go <laughs> it's it's an interesting watch i'll say that for it oh so it's n- nothing like this it's not as oh um, no it's no it's not it, it doesn't do like the same this. things to you that this movie does <laughs> no it's nothing like this no oh, you wow. really should I can't believe you've not seen it, right? Have you seen the third one? I might have. Like, all I remember basically is seeing this movie when I was younger and then seeing The Exorcist Dominion when... Let me check when that one came out so I can know the timeline for this. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, Are you okay if I go on while you're checking the timeline? Sure, go for it. So this is actually set on a real-life case of a boy... And it took place in 1949 in Silver Spring, Maryland. Um, that that came uh, from the... Oh, oh, I need to say this too. Um, so I, and I believe you did too, we watched the um, original version. We did not do the director's cut. Right, right. Because uh, the only one I could find on Prime was the theatrical version. Yes. So we do not have the infamous spider walk down the stairs scene in ours. Oh, I would have loved to have seen that. <clears throat> which was actually lifted pretty much from a very old, old uh, film. Is it Italian? I want to say where a woman does, uh, does the exact same thing, but it was like from like the, Oh, I don't even remember when, if you have the box set from Severn, all the, is it all the haunts be ours? It's on that box set, the movie. Anyways, I'm drawing a blank on that. So anyway, okay. So I've got mm -hmm. it. Um, So actually the, Okay, so I've only seen two Exorcist movies. So this one and uh, Dominion prequel to The Exorcist, which came out in 2005. So, yeah, those are the only two Exorcist films that I have seen. Now, I don't want to drag this whole thing out, but there were actually two Exorcist films shot, uh, prequels, um, and they didn't like the first one, so they hurried up and did a second one. Do you remember? Does it tell you which one? Uh, no, it doesn't. It just says this one came out in 2005. Um, and it was really good. It was, I mean, I enjoyed it, but some people might not have liked it. I don't know. Mm Um, yeah, it doesn't um, give me any. So I think the other one is The Exorcist, the beginning from 2004. Oh, okay. Yeah. I've never seen that one. And that one, actually, William Peter Blatty did have a a credit as one of the writers on that one. So 2004, I guess, is the one that they didn't like, and they hurried and rushed out the one you're talking about. Yeah, because the one I'm talking about has uh, ties to this one that we're talking about now, where it's, uh, you know, the statue of Pazuzu and um, back in the in the Holy land where, when the, when the crusades were happening and like all kinds, there, there's like different ties to it and mm-hmm. little bits and pieces that bring it to like the 73 version of it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, that's uh yeah, those are the only two that I've seen. Okay. Well, you need to see part part two before you die. <laughs> um, so uh our film opens um with um the setting of Iraq, northern Iraq, actually. And it's uh was filmed during a real archaeological dig. It wasn't set up for the film, they just uh were able to get that. And we're fixated now at the beginning on Father Marin, who's uh played by Max von Sadow. Um, and, um, during the dig, he is, um, privy to some archeological, um, uh, uh, finds, um, there's like, uh, arrowheads, coins, some lamps and everything. And he also notices there's a medallion from a different period amongst the things that has been uncovered as well as a piece of a, a statuary, which is actually the, the, uh, the, uh, Babylonian, um, uh, demon, uh, demon Pazuzu statuary. Um, and actually, uh, part of the mythology of Pazuzu is, uh, uh, he's supposed to be, uh, famine during dry times and he's supposed to send locusts, uh, during the rains and he's king of the demons of the wind or everything he's accredited to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think maybe he's also the one that takes one of your socks out of the dryer. <laughs> the the non the non uh, semen stained ones. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, it's also revealed that our priest that we're dealing with here has like medical issues in regards to his heart. His heart's not the best thing in the world. Yeah, I just thought he was really into mints. Right, he's got the best <laughs> breath of any exorcist out there. <laughs> so. Um, and then we get the scene where clearly the uh, little uh, medallion coin thing he's looking at has some sort of power because he mentions that evil it's evil against evil and the clock stops. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of foreshadowing. And I wanted to ask you about that to see if you knew um, the medallion, like the purpose of the medallion, since it's so old, was there like some kind of other evil that was like maybe Pazuzu was summoned to battle against like another kind, maybe the crusaders were considered evil. And so like, yeah, that's what I was trying to figure out. <laughs> I, or I wonder if it was flip. And so that coin was whoever possessed that coin was to battle or the medallion thing was to battle Pazuzu because that's oh. what they find later. Yeah. Okay. So that's what I think it is. Would the medallion be considered evil too? Then I guess because it huh. says evil against evil. I don't. You know. Well, yeah. of course, it is the Catholic Church, and you can't get much more evil than that. Whoa. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Um, uh, are you joking though? <laughs> <laughs> um, and we just get some kind of like different. Uh, I mean, I love the film's imagery and things like that because you get the one part where he's nearly run down by the horse cart with the old, you know, the older lady and mm-hmm. you know, as a passenger. Um, and you get that a really cool shadowy scene of like Pazuzu and Marin in the dog fight scene. Yeah, they're, they're like uh, facing off against each other. Yeah, it's like the priest has been against the statue. Yeah. And then we uh, head to Georgetown, uh, Washington, where basically most of this transpires. It's in a brownstone that's being rented by an actress named Chris McNeil. Um, she's living there with her daughter, Reagan, a 12 year old. Um, and now Chris McNeil is uh, Ellen Bernst and. Um, uh, Reagan is played by Linda Blair. Um, she's living there with her housekeepers. Uh, it's a married couple, um, Carl and Willie. They are of German descent. And then she has her, um, uh, what's the word? It's slipping me now. Uh, uh, 
Sharon is like her uh, personal assistant. That's what I want. Personal assistant, uh, Sharon, who also uh, is helping her out while she's in Georgetown. Um, anyway, so uh, the the first thing of note is there's attic noises. Um, that's the first tip off that there's something not quite right in the home. Um, yeah. She also, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, Rob. No, I was just, um, I was trying to follow along with you here because I'm looking at oh, my okay. notes. Gotcha, gotcha. But yeah, they're, they're, they're like scratching sounds in the attic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's also a note that Reagan's window has, uh, <laughs> has a problem staying closed. It's often open quite a bit in the film and it's not the time of year you would have your window open. It's very cold. Yeah. Yes. Um, so she's there to shoot a film uh, and her director, as I mentioned earlier, is Burke Dennings. And while she's filming, uh, we are first introduced to Father Damien Karras. He's, I guess, a bit of a film buff, maybe, or just the fact that it's being filmed at Georgetown University. He's just kind of taken a gander. Uh, but <clears throat> he's watching her film her scene. <clears throat> and basically, uh, the the scene, it is the 70s. So the scene that of the film she's filming, it's like a student protest thing. And she's like, uh, an educator or someone in charge. And she's talking about, you know, human rights versus the right to an education, everything. Um, so that's just what she's doing. Um, and then she's um, deciding to walk home from work. And this is the first time because I love, there's so much to love about this, but I also love that the fact that they've inter, uh, were able to work into the film, Michael Oldenfield's Tubular Bells, the music. I knew and I heard that. <laughs> somewhere before okay yeah and this is the first time in the film that it plays oh i also like that as she's walking home we find out it's halloween because you have the kids in the costume and she sees the nuns and it's all breezy and everything i love how they just kind of slide that in there that um, like went completely over my head because i didn't even notice that oh yeah there's trick or treat which again it's way too cold for it's october it's almost november it's way too cold for reagan's bedroom windows to be open like they are for her to be sleeping that way um, <clears throat> and it's also of note that as, uh, Miss McNeil's walking to her, uh, her residence, she overhears Dr. Karras and another priest kind of having a conversation about faith, um, which all that will come into play later. So, um, once home, we're kind of privy to the relationship that, you know, Chris has with Reagan. It's very sweet and they're discussing horses and everything. And um, <clears throat> it's kind of important that we see Chris's relationship with Reagan, mother-daughter, because it's also juxtaposed with Damien's relationship with his ailing, aging mother as well. Yeah. So it's, it's very much the dynamic of a mother and child on the two, uh, two planes. I like how they did that too. Like the, the character development between both the mother and the daughter. And then, you know, the son coming home to visit his mom and check up mm -hmm. on her. Exactly. Now, just real quick. Um, the director, Mr. Friedkin kind of based the mother daughter relationship on the actress, Shirley MacLaine, um, on her and her daughter's relationship. Um, so that's kind of what this was stemmed from. Also of note, Shirley MacLaine would uh, do a kind of like possession movie herself. It was called The Possession of Joel Delaney. 
which that's another film that I saw uh, young. And I absolutely love that movie as well. Um, so I forget she may be an actress, too. I forget exactly what the character in that film does. But her brother becomes possessed by the um, by like a dead uh, Puerto Rican man. Um, and then things kind of escalate from there. But it's really kind of a cool, creepy film, too. I, I love the possession of Joel Delaney. But There's we're back a on track. Of, a lot of possession movies, like The Possession of Emily Rose. And uh, did you ever see yeah. that one? Oh, yeah. No, I love. Okay. I'm telling you, I love <laughs> demonic. Possession. So th- this is this is your cup of tea right here. I do love stuff like this. I really do. I I just the whole satanic stuff. Just I don't know what about it. I I it may be just by weird relationship with religion. Maybe I don't know what it is, but this I don't know. There's something about it I just find utterly fascinating. Hmm. Yeah. Anyway, okay. So back at uh, 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 Damien's mother's apartment, I mean, it's uh, the total opposite of the McNeil's place. It's it's very dark. Um, she's living alone. She's not in the best health. Uh, you know, Damien's checking on her, but he kind of regrets his decision as to where he's been placed as far as uh, his 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 job is assigned him because he's further away from her now and. He doesn't want her to be alone, but she doesn't want to leave because that's her house. She doesn't, you know, I mean, does anyone rightfully want to stay where they they've known all these years? They don't want to just go somewhere else. Um, and it's very sweet. He leaves her money and he heads off. Um, now. We're in the basement of the brownstone with. Chris and Reagan, and they're yeah. having their little conversation. This sets up a lot to oh, follow. It later does. In the film. Yeah. But like, uh, firstly. We get the um, wait. Am, am I saying? Am I speaking out of order? Uh, like, do we get the Ouija board first, where the mother notices it and she's like, "What's this?" First, we get the fact that Reagan is artistic. She likes to work with clay. She likes oh, to paint. Okay. So that's very important to know because that comes to play like much later. That's very important, um, you know, because she's she has access to these things. And then mom pulls out, just like you said, the Ouija board. Oh, that makes that explains a lot because I was like, (laughs) well, I'll I'll say when we get to it. (laughs) Okay, yeah. So, I mean, this sets a lot into play. Yeah. And then so, of course, like you were saying, mom pulls out the Ouija board and she says that you need people to play it with. And then Reagan very nonchalantly, very innocently fesses up that she's been playing with it alone, which. Right. If we know anything, never supposed to do that. Yeah. If we know, if we've learned nothing from watching Witchboard. Right. Right, Exactly. That and how to tease our hair a mile high. Yeah. Um, But then now this is what, okay. Very clearly the planchette operates on its own. Yeah. Like it doesn't want the mother to touch it. No, but like, do you agree that like it, Neither one of them made that move. It moved of its own accord. Oh, yeah, because no, neither one of them had even put their hands close to it at that point. But, okay, so I'm assuming Reagan's been messing with this, so maybe she's just kind of okay with this. I'm not even sure to what extent she's almost become possessed by now as it is. But as a parent, I'd be freaking the fuck out. Oh, yeah, especially since the kid is not shocked by what just happened. And yes, but not even that. Me, just the thing moving. I'd be like, holy shit, get the hell out. We're leaving. And she's just like, oh, you know, <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> and 
I'd be like, holy cow, we're getting out of here. I guess Captain Howdy doesn't feel like playing today. Yeah. And then I, you know, what did she? Oh, she asks. Reagan asks Captain Howdy if her mother is pretty. And then she's like, that's not nice. And I wonder what his response was. <laughs> oh, yeah, because it didn't answer through the board. Just... No, yeah, and I wonder what his response was. But yeah, so that always just didn't sit right with me because I'm like, how are you, what are you, are you just brushing this off? Mm -hmm. Like, because are you just like denying what you're seeing? I don't know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> whatever, whatever. Um, yeah. And that's when things like they get kicked up a notch after that. Oh, totally, 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 totally. Um, so... We also come to find out that Karis is definitely struggling with his feelings of faith. And it, he's feeling like it's hindering his profession because not only is he a psychiatrist, but he's a priest. And he's at odds because he's like, how can I be doing what I'm doing when I, I can't even back what I'm saying with how I feel? Yeah, he's been in the trenches for way too long. Yeah, he's just... It, he's struggling. Um, so it's Reagan's birthday is coming up and um, <laughs> Chris is mad as hell because her Reagan's dad has not, he's a, uh, he's out of, he's in Europe, I believe. And he's not called her on her birthday. Now I'm still unclear as to whether they're still a married couple. If they're separated, if they're completely divorced, I'm, I'm not real a hundred percent clear on, the mother father relationship. And she's also um, not very forthcoming with anything that's going on later with this gentleman either. Oh yeah. It's a, mm -hmm. That's a mystery right there. Right, right, right. Well, of course, you know, Reagan overhears all this too. So she's, she's at that age where she knows she's aware of things going on around her. You know, she knows that there's some struggle and strife between her mother and her father and everything and mm -hmm. all that. Um, so, uh, the next morning, um, Chris is, is getting her, you know, early morning call to head off to her job for work, you know, to film. And she hears the noises emanating from the attic again. And she decides to go up and investigate. Yeah. Um, this time those you, noises are a bit louder too. Yes. You get that scene though, before she heads up where she goes in and she kisses, she asks Reagan if she's awake and she kisses her because she's still asleep, air quotes. But then Reagan, like just her eyes dart open and she's got that blank stare, which I, is super creepy. I don't think I saw that. Yeah. I didn't the, catch yeah, that. Yeah, it's just like she's just laying there, but it's like she's almost comatose. Anyway, oh, so okay. the mom heads upstairs. All of the traps that she's insisted be set up by Carl, none of them have gone off. So all they're still like, you know, none have been triggered. She's up there with that candlestick and then all of a sudden it like flares up. Yeah. That thing, like a firecracker. Yeah. It's yeah. And you get that Carl jump scare. <laughs> it's Carl, wear a bell. Right. Right. I mean, speaking of bells. So we get the church bells ringing and then we uh, have the scene with the, uh, another priest that we've never really seen. We're not privy to who this man really is per se, but he's walking into the church uh, to set things up for mass that morning. And he realizes that the statue of the Virgin Mary has been defiled. She's been given like uh, 
pointed breasts. She's got like a pointed penis, and then like her face has been painted. It's almost like a Madonna, a, like a prop Madonna for her, you know, Virgin tour or something yeah. like that. Yeah, and um, see that makes sense now that you said Reagan was artistic, because I was like, who the hell put, <laughs> who put the cones on the boobs of the Virgin? Yeah, and because they're painted. Like with almost the same colors that that bird is. Yeah, and they're all they're made of clay, right? Exactly. Okay. Yes, exactly. And her window is always open during the night. Mm-hmm. So she yes. could have snuck out and you know did did a little business there and went back to bed. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Um, <clears throat> so in the interim of all this going on, uh, Father Karras's mother has taken a turn for the worse causing uh, Damien's uncle to put her into um, a care facility, which is not of the highest quality because they're poor. They can't afford it. And this has really upset uh, Damien, and this plays on his guilt even more. And the uncle's not helping matters because he points out that, you know, hey, if you had not been a priest and you just gone into psychiatric work, you'd be a world-renowned psychiatrist by now, and your mother would be living, like, in the lap of luxury, and we could afford, like, you know, private health care, but this is what we're, you know, forced to do now yeah he was a um, dick well yeah and then mom is you know she's bound to the bed which is interesting because later reagan will be bound just the same way mm-hmm. um she's upset she obviously doesn't want to be there she's you know um confused and it's just no one wants to see their mother like that um so he's all upset and he decides to take his frustrations out at a uh oh at a gym he's punching the bag because he was also a boxer in his like prior life. He, you know, that was another thing he was into. He boxed. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, now I read the book, like I love the exorcist. Like I read the book a couple of times. Um, a couple of things were like really fleshed out. Like the Sharon character is like way more fleshed out. And I think things are a lot clearer in the book that they're kind of, they're, they're touched on in the movie, but not like super, spelled out for you okay yeah well so, th- that's how it usually happens like the book is more um mm-hmm. like the book is more it, it describes things in more detail than the movie could ever do yeah so this is one scene that i think if you're not paying attention to it it might not make sense exactly the context this is happening but there's a dinner party okay and, you know, Chris is very well off. She's an actress. She runs in a certain circle of people. <clears throat> I apologize. Um, and one of the people there is an astronaut. And he's making a comment to someone else about, you know, it's it's safe up there. And if they go back, blah, blah, blah. And then you have Burke, who's had way too much to drink, um, talking about like an alien pubic hair in his drink and things like that. And he starts like goading poor Carl about being a Nazi and everything. Um, and Carl just seems like the sweetest man in the world. I don't know why Burke, Burke just seems like the personality type that he would just <laughs> decide that would be fun to do and just not let up on it. Yeah. He's a mean drunk. Yeah. Um, and there is, I believe it's father Dyer and he's the one who is, like, <laughs> he's the one who's good at the piano and everything. Well, Miss McNeil is kind of become like fascinated not in a sexual way, just kind of curious about Father Karras because she's been seeing him around. Um, and so she's kind of questioning Father Dyer about him because they're in the same like parish, basically, or they work at the same you know university. Um, 
and he kind of fills her in that, you know, Damien is a psychiatric counselor as well. And that his uh, mom died. Um, his, his mom is, was found dead uh, for a few days before anyone. His mother died a few days before anyone found her. So we know that she's already passed on and everything. Um, and in the kitchen, the fight that Burke started has escalated to the point where they've had to pull Carl off this poor man. Yeah. <laughs> Not poor man. They've had to pull poor <laughs> Poor Carl, Carl off this drunk man because he just will not let up. And once he's gotten to this point, he seems like, okay, this is great. This is where I wanted this to be. Yeah. You know, he seems very pleased with himself. Right. He's got okay. a smile on his face and everything. Exactly. So Reagan was at the party earlier and now she's been tucked into bed and everything. Mom kisses her goodnight. She says, you know, you sleeping. And then again, she thinks she is, but her eyes are pop open and she's got that look on her face again. Her window's open. Okay? Yeah, this time I saw that. Mm-hmm. Downstairs. I don't know. I hope to God there was a taxi waiting for Burke because Sharon and Chris just like escort him out the front door. And I'm like, <laughs> I hope they didn't just let this man drive because he was like three sheets to the wind for sure. Yeah, he was gone. <clears throat> so everyone's around the piano. They're doing their little festivity things, singing and everything. And Reagan shows up. And she says, you're going to die up there. And I thought she was talking to the father. She's the, talking to the to the astronaut. The astronaut. Oh, I yes, didn't know there was an astronaut there. Yes, because he's the one that earlier was talking about. He'll be safe when he goes back up. Oh, okay. Yeah, there's a lot of things that I that didn't catch. was more fleshed out in the book. And it's so, they just... Like it doesn't really make sense in the context of the movie because they, I feel they brush over it so quick that if you're not really paying close, close attention to that conversation, it's not really going to make sense. Right. And I, I definitely was not paying close attention to that conversation. And then she releases her bladder and just pees all over the the place. Yeah. And that's the Um, first of many disturbing images in this movie. Like there's quite a few. Yes. And I want to say this too, in the book, it's it's more drawn out and you could see where the mother would think that there's something physically like wrong with her daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it really is a good book. I recommend people if they are readers to like read the book because it it's. And not that the movie's bad, I don't mean that, but like it really does flesh things out so much more. And you really feel for this mother who's like struggling to figure out what exactly is wrong with her daughter. Yeah, because she starts off like as a perfectly normal kid and then over the course of like a few weeks just kind of devolves. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So mom's, you know, and this is a dinner party. So mom's got her upstairs in the tub and everything. And, you know, she, you know, uh, she excuses her, says, you know, she's been sick and everything. And then Reagan just flat out says, you know, mother, what's wrong with me? And then mom just chalks it up to nerves and says, you know, you just have to keep taking your pills that they've prescribed. Yeah, what did um, they prescribe these pills for her, though? That's what I'm wondering. Yeah, well, you know, clearly, you know, we there's stuff that we're not privy to that it's like, yeah. you know, just it's happened. They left some so, parts out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so mom sees Willie, you know, scrubbing the carpet from below. But then upstairs you hear screaming and she goes back into the bedroom and the bed is shaking. And clearly, like Reagan's terrified because you would have no clue what's going on. Yeah, uh, the little girl is not strong enough to make that bed jump the way that it was jumping. No, not at all. Not at all. 
Oh, really quick. So the actor, Jason Miller, that plays Damien, he actually studied to be a Jesuit priest for three years in real life. Not because of this role. This is just something he did. Oh, so he was going to be a priest. And yes, he, he, he studied for it. Yes, to. yes, yes, yes. All right, so I'm back here. Okay, so <clears throat> Father Dyer, the piano priest from earlier, he's gone to check in on Damien because, you know, his mom's just passed away. He's not in good shape. So they have some drinks together and everything. And, you know, he goes on about how he feels guilty, as anyone would. And um, the 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 Father Dyer, you know, kind of puts him to bed and everything. And Karis has this dream and he sees that medallion that we saw earlier falling and you see a dog running and his mother's coming up with her groceries and everything like from the subway <clears throat> and Damien's calling like from afar to her and you get that weird creepy face. It's like kind of sub subliminally flashed throughout the movie. It's, uh, um, it's almost like a, uh, paint it white. Yeah. Like sunken in eyes and everything. And the like teeth a are skeleton weird. face. Yeah. 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 So you get that flash and everything. And then mom just turns and goes back down the subway like she didn't hear Damien at all. And so he goes running for her. Mm -hmm. And then this segues into screams, um, which is emanating from Reagan in a hospital. Uh, and she's resisting receiving a shot. And she um, spits and, and cusses at the uh, doctor trying to administer the shot. Then we have a scene of uh, one of many of Karis uh, getting ready to say or performing a mass uh, at, at the church. So back at the hospital, you know, the mom's clearly distraught and they are, I love that the doctor's smoking, which is a real thing, people like, yeah, there was the a time where no matter where you were, what the profession, they would just light up and start smoking in front of you. Yeah. And the um, uh, late seventies, early eighties. Oh yeah. Totally see. people. Yeah. 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 And they so, would caution you not to smoke, but then they'd be out there um, smoking cigarettes. Oh, yeah, it was like, yeah, exactly. It was like, do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> but anyway, they're chalking these issues up to her temporal lobe. Um, and they're saying that it caused like bizarre hallucinations, you know, maybe convulsions. And that's what's causing the bed to bump. <laughs> Chris is not buying any of this because she's seen this and they have not. So she's really not swallowing this pill that they're trying to give her. Yeah. <clears throat> And they're thinking that it's like a, a lesion. And the good thing about this is it can be uh, operated upon, you know, so it's not like something that will like, you know, totally destroy her life. Um, it could last for a few days, a few weeks, um, and it could cause uh, destructive criminal behavior in the patient. Okay. So they want to operate to remove the scar. OK, um, now here here's where I want to go into a couple of things. Um, no, I'm going to go a little bit further. Than I'll go into. Them. OK, so. <clears throat> Reagan's going in for a. Phenophallograph. Is that like an MRI before there were um, MRI machines? Yes, exactly. What they do is they put air into the spinal fluid. And it was um, basically uh, CT scans and MRIs have replaced the process. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> so there's a lot I want to go into here with you. Uh, let me talk about this. Okay, this real quick. So basically in the film, Reagan's like on her bed and there's this giant like neck needle that they stick in there. Blood squirts out and they insert this tube and everything. 
And the machine that's going to do the process makes this like really loud noise. How did you feel about that? Because I know how much you hate needles. The whole thing is super disturbing. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Was that real blood? I know. I don't. No, no. I, I don't believe it was real blood. Because it all. did no, look no, like no. real blood for him. Yeah. I was no, like, I think that was just God. movie magic. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. So here we go. <clears throat> here we go. So Ellen Bernstein snuck off to see this while she was filming. Um, a movie in Arizona. A woman passed out during this scene and she was helping her out of the theater. And then the woman came to and realized that this was the woman for the exorcist and then freaked out all over again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Wow. Now, um, I thought this was cool. This may not appeal to anyone else, but I thought this was super cool. So one of the sound designers on the film is Gonzalo Gavira, and he got the job because of the work that he did with Alejandro Jodorowsky, Alejandro Jodorowsky's El Topo, which is awesome if you know um, that film. I thought that was really cool that, that that movie got him this gig. Okay, I am a super, super true crime addict. I have been since I was little, which kind of makes sense because I feel that horror and true crime kind of go hand in hand in a, in a weird way. Yeah. Okay. So in this scene, Friedkin won it actual like people, not actors for this scene because he thought it would give it like validity. Okay. You with me? Oh, yeah, I'm with you. Okay, so the one guy, he's kind of cute, and he's got like a mustache, and he's got that leather wrist watch on. He's the one assisting Reagan. Okay. Okay. His name is Paul Batson in real life. He received 20 years for killing someone. He was a film critic. He was, this guy was gay. This Paul Batson guy was gay. He also claimed to have killed six other gay men and the bodies were found cut up and placed in bags. And it was referred to as the bag murderer. It was never proven or disproven if he did the other six murders, but he did receive 20 years for actually killing the film critic. The movie I mentioned earlier, Cruising, is about a gay serial killer who is picking off men in the gay community. William Friedkin got that idea from his interactions with this gentleman, and that's how he made Cruising. Oh, wow. So you follow me? Yeah. Okay, so I thought that was very interesting. I've always thought that was kind of a weird, quirky thing with this movie. Okay, so we're moving on. Okay, so... um <clears throat> Back at the McNeil house, a uh, Dr. Klein and one of his protégés have arrived and they're greeted by Sharon and there's screams emanating from upstairs. And we go up there and Reagan is like thrusting on the bed. And then we get that growl thing with the neck expanding. And then she just like bitch slaps the doctor. <laughs> I and love a that stream part. <laughs> of, yeah, a stream of profanity is just like spill like right out of her mouth. Um, 
and then he goes in for a shot to calm her down. Okay. Once outside, Sharon and Chris are out there, and then Dr. Klein says that she's heavily sedated, and he chalks it up to a pathological state, which will give her abnormal strength. And he likens it to like a woman seeing her child pinned underneath the truck and she can like lift it up. Yeah, I was like that. I like that part because I'm thinking, you know, those are two different things. Very different. Oh, things. two different things. Totally yeah. two different things. Yeah. And then Chris is still wanting answers and she's like flipping out because this is her child and everything they're telling her isn't jiving with what she's seeing. It's not it's not kosher. It's not it's not linking up. Right. And this. I love how she, the actress, is really good at like showing like just physically like how drained she is, her character, like to live with this. I just think it's wonderful. And then they give her the split personality theory and she poo-poos that and they want to do another spinal, um, see if they miss something in the EEG and everything and they want to eliminate all the other possibilities. So she agrees to it back at the hospital. There's more tests, more negative x-rays. And then they question her. Maybe there's drugs in the house. And she denies this heavily. She says she doesn't even smoke grass, Um, which you kind of get to. They know she's an actress and they're kind of alluding to this like lifestyle. Like, you know, maybe there's like all sorts of things going on in the house that, like you know, she's in denial about. Um, And then they ask if she's going to go back to L.A. And she's like, no, because she's building a new house and everything. And. She planned on taking to Reagan to Europe after school was finished and everything. Uh, and this is where they bring up that maybe it's time for a psychiatrist to check her out. So um, that evening, uh, Chris is in her car and she passes a crowd um, kind of gathered around. And there's a, in the kitchen, she enters and there's lights flashing, everything and the phone's ringing and she answers, but there's no one on it. And she's calling for Sharon because clearly um, that's part of her job is to kind of like, you know, be there with Reagan when Chris is working. Um, and she can't find her. She goes up to Reagan's room and it's freezing because like the, you can see her breath and the windows are wide open. Um, she, she closes them and you can still hear sirens from outside. Um, she locks the windows and everything and she covers up Reagan heads downstairs. Um, and then she's confronted with Sharon coming in and Sharon's all bundled up. So clearly she's been gone. Um, so Chris is obviously upset. She confronts her and then, you know, Sharon tells her that she went to go get the Thorazine. And then she makes mention that, you know, Burke should have been watching Reagan. You know, she left him with her. Well, Chris is like, well, obviously he's not here. Then we get the doorbell ringing and a coworker on the project with Chris comes in and he says that Burke is dead. You know, uh, he was drunk and he fell from the top of the stairs outside. And he's broken his neck. Yeah which causes Chris to have a breakdown. Um, Back in the room, Reagan has been put under by the psychiatrist. Uh, He asks her if there's someone inside of her, and she says sometimes. And he asks her if it's Captain Howdy, and um, she says she doesn't really know. Um, The other person won't let let her answer. Um, And then uh, he asks if uh, she's afraid. Uh, And then he wants, uh, and she asks if he, she wants the person inside of her to leave her. So the person, the psychiatrist hypnotizes the person inside the girl. Um, and that's when like the picture kind of falls off the wall and Reagan kind of growls and she's got super foul breath. Um, and we get the crotch grab, which sends the psychiatrist to the floor. Now, 
we're on the uh, Georgetown University track and Karis is running. And this is where we're first introduced to uh, Lieutenant uh, Kinderman from Homicide. So as Karis winds down his race, we find out why Kinderman's actually there. He's piecing together the desecration in the church and the death of Burke. And something's not jiving with Kinderman because the fracture of the skull and neck on Burke almost looks like it was done by a man with super strength and it happened before the fall. So it wasn't a cause of the fall. He was actually killed and then thrown down the steps. And he's trying to piece this all together. Like maybe it's one in the same. Um, He's trying to figure out like, is it witchcraft? Is it some kind of satanic, you know, black mass thing? And he's feeling that as a psychiatrist, Father Karras would be privy to maybe someone using either confession or his psychiatric services uh, as a way to confess or unload um, information that might help the detective or the lieutenant solve this mystery, crime, however you want to look at it. Um, Father Karras is like, I don't know anything. Even if I did, I couldn't You really share that with you. It would be private information. Um, and then the lieutenant makes mention that, you know, there have been cases where they've gone to court and then Father Karras pulls out the whole, you know, if it's confession, I can't tell you anyway, that's the way around this. Um, they kind of make small talk. It's revealed that uh, Father Kinderman is a huge movie fan, which I think is awesome. Um, and they kind of exchange niceties. And uh, I like how uh, <laughs> Father Karras tells them it was the Dominicans, now go bother them instead of the <laughs> instead of the Jesuits. Um, so back at the hospital, this is our second instance of tubular bells, which I think is so cool. We kind of get the montage of, you know, Reagan in the hospital and everything. And we're in a big like board meeting room with all the doctors kind of explaining things to Chris. Um, and Chris is like just putting her foot down that she's not going to lock her daughter up. You know, there's they've got to find out what's wrong with her. She's not just going to, you know, put her away and just close the door on things and just brush this aside. Um they're mentioning that maybe shock treatment would be an option. Um, and then they introduce the idea of exorcism. Now, what I find so interesting about all this is they made Chris an actress, which means that her life is so very, very public. And you would definitely not want this to get out. Like, imagine, like, if, you know, someone like Gwyneth Paltrow, one of her kids was like this was going on. They would not want this to be known. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, I just think that adds a whole nother layer to everything. The fact that, you know, this person's living such a public life anyway. Okay. So they, you know, they mentioned the idea of exorcism and, uh, the one doctor mentions it's basically a stylized ritual to drive out a spirit. Um, and it's purely just a, a force of suggestion thing. Um, but the belief in it makes it, um, makes the, I like the, uh, you know, quotes, makes the spirit or the demon disappear. Um, and then Chris is like, basically, you're telling me to, that I need a witch doctor to, to help my daughter. Yeah, something um, like that. Yeah, so we get the car ride home. She's retrieved Reagan from the hospital. She's wrapped in a blanket. 
you know, Chris is basically incognito. She's got that big scarf on those giant sunglasses and everything. Um, they get the girl inside. Then, um, upstairs, Chris is tucking her in and she finds a crucifix, like a cross tucked underneath her pillow. Yeah. That kind of, where did that come from? No, everyone's denying this. Everyone's denying this. I'm wondering if it wasn't taken from the church. If Reagan herself didn't steal it as like a trophy. Oh, so the, the possessed Reagan. Yeah. Okay. Because everyone, I really do kind of feel that, that everyone would be, I get the impression everyone would be on the up and up with Chris. Like I feel that Karen, Carl and Willie would be, you know, honest with her. I think Sharon's worked with her so long. I get the impression they have a relationship, not like a sexual, but like a working relationship that Sharon would be up front with her. I really think Reagan may have taken that. Yeah, I don't think the, anybody else would lie because it's like they've got no reason. There's no reason to do, you know, to lie no, about yeah. putting something like that there. I really don't. I think I really, me in my heart of hearts, I think that it was like a trophy that she took back. I do. That's what I think. I mean, I mean, someone else could easily be lying to her, but I just don't get that impression. Yeah. Um, okay, this has been bugging me since, uh, since like the beginning of the movie. But where did that medallion come into play? Like, how did that get into the house? Um, because I'm assuming that it, it was there like the whole time. And but, Well, that was Damien's. He was wearing it. Oh, that was? Yes, I believe so. I believe so. Or, or I wonder, no, I bet you it was Marin's. Oh, so it, then Father Marin brought it in. Marin brought it in. That would make more sense. Okay. See, I thought that's what caused the possession was that like, it was, the medallion was somewhere in the house. I think Marin brought it in. Okay. Yeah. All right. So then my assumption is incorrect. Okay. I think maybe Marin brought it in. I think Marin brought it in, but what happens at the end? I wonder if. See, I assume I'll answer it when we get the. I'll, I'll talk about this when we get to the end of the film. Is that okay? Yeah, that's fine. My theory, my theory. Okay, all right. Um, but also at the bottom of the steps, Kinderman has come to pay Miss um, McNeil a visit, and he picks up a clay animal at the bottom of the steps. It almost looks like a hippo. Um, but it's not been painted. It's just a molded clay animal at the bottom of the steps where Burke was found. And so, see, I thought that was the, uh, like the, the Pazuzu, um, the Pazuzu statue thing, like just the head part that father Marin. Oh yeah. Up. No, it's a hippo. It's oh, like okay. an animal. It's, like, it's an animal because this will come and play in just a second. Okay. So upstairs, Chris has come out and she starts to confront the two women, you know, about the, crucifix or cross and everything. They, they deny it. Carl denies it. Um, the detective arrives. Chris takes him to the kitchen and he starts to kind of not meanly, but starts to press her with questions. Um, you know, he asked, you know, was uh, Burke in Reagan's room that night? And, you know, the mother says, well, you know, it wouldn't have mattered because Reagan was heavily sedated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then she says that they're still unclear on what's actually you know wrong with her, what her illness is. And then I, 
I love how the detective makes the comment, watch out for drafts. Yeah, what? I don't understand what that meant. Uh, well, her window's always open. I think he's just saying it's just a weird, like, coincidence, I think. But I oh. wonder if he's, like, kind of figuring things out. You know, like, there was the window, bottom of the steps. If he's just kind of feeling things out. I don't know. It's just a very interesting comment. Okay, um, yeah. So you don't think that he's assuming that uh, Reagan is the one, you know, committing these things then? Um, I don't know exactly quite what he's thinking because he does have the, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Um, and then he mentions it was strange for the deceased to have only stayed 20 minutes and that he would leave a sick girl alone. Mm -hmm. Um, and it would just be odd that, you know, he would fall from a window like that. Yeah. Um, and have his head turned basically 180 degrees around or something. Yeah. The skull fractures, um, like I said earlier, they you know look like they came from a powerful man, and it almost seems like he was killed and then pushed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he wonders, did you know someone come calling between that time that that no one knows about? You know, and, and he questions, or maybe do the housekeepers have guests or anything? And um, <clears throat> then he he goes into like another tangent, but he shuts himself down. He's like, oh no, never mind. And then uh, she offers him more coffee, and I'm pretty sure she didn't think he would take her up on it, but he does. <laughs> <laughs> um, then you can kind of see, and I think that I think that Ellen is like just. I think everyone is like at the top of their game, but you can see on her face that she's starting to play things in her head, like he's planted these seeds, and she's starting to work this out in her head. Mm-hmm. Um. But this is when he spies the animal painting and there's like a gray hippo and other gray animals on it. Oh, yeah. Yep. And then he goes over and he picks up the little sculptures that she's made in the window, too. And then he makes a mention that, you know, oh, your daughter's an artist. Um, And then. uh, And then again, he questions if Burke had been in the room and she's like, well, he would really have no reason to be in her room. And she does say, you know, I'll, when she gets better, I'll ask her and everything to kind of like, you know, tramp this down and everything. Mm-hmm. And then you get that really weird, awkward request for an autograph where he yeah. does it with the guise of like, was it his daughter or something? And he's like, well, no, it really is for me. <laughs> right. That seemed out of place where it's like, was he. So, OK, so he knew who she was this entire time because she, well, she's a famous actress. Yeah, she's you would a, know who she yeah, was. She's yeah, she's famous. famous actress. And so he's like, all of a sudden, he's like, oh, I've got one more thing. <laughs> Can I have your autograph? Yeah. Uh, now, I find it interesting that the movie that he saw of hers that he loved so much, he saw it six times. It was called Angel. Oh, yeah, that's right. I just thought that was interesting. Um, uh, and then, you know, he tells her she's a very nice lady and she's like, you're a nice man. And he says he'll return when the girl's feeling better and everything. And Chris closes the door and you can tell she's very shaken. So <laughs> as if this wasn't bad enough, we get the noises from upstairs. You run up there. Oh, this is that disturbing scene, isn't it? It's clearly like poltergeist took a cue from this because everything's flying around the room. <laughs> Then she, you know, drops the let Jesus fuck you line and she's got that bloody crucifix and which I want to point out, I feel that she's not 
masturbating with this crucifix. This is violent. She's oh yeah, jabbing no. it in her. This is not a sexual thing at all. Because people always say she's masturbating with the crucifix. She's not really. Ma- she's jamming this, and this is like. Yeah, it like was a physically aggressive act. It was meant to be disturbing, I think. But also, like the the thing that I had with it is, were um, okay. You know, you know clearly the implications of what's going on. They're not showing you, but it's implied that this that crucifix is going in a place that is like, oh yes, totally yeah. yeah. But it's not like a sex. She's not masturbating. I, what I'm trying to say is, it's not a sexual act it's an act of aggression yeah well it's uh, yeah. meant to be like a, a demonic act where it's like you know let me let me pervert this as much right. as it's I can it's like a desecration exactly. yeah well then she grabs her mom's head and makes like a comment about like yeah she's like lick me lick me yeah yeah and she forces her head in there and this yeah. poor mother like she's at her wits end um and how do they know, how do they pull this off because i'm assuming that linda blair was you know pretty much underage and there would she had a she had a body double for some scenes. Oh, okay, she had a body double. Yeah, and um, now this is the scene, if I'm not mistaken, that Ellen Bernst actually got hurt in with the whole Chip and Dale sliding across the floor and everything, because um, they had to pull her and they pulled her like way too hard. And she actually hurt herself. Um, because I know Linda hurt her back with that where she was like sitting up and going back real quick. That hurt her. And this is the scene where Ellen Burns got hurt really bad. She was like sliding across the floor? When they pull the mom, when the mom gets thrown back. Oh, I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember that part. Cause after that, yeah. after she was like, lick me. And then she kind of pushed her away. Yeah. And then she gets uh, like, okay. Yeah. So. And then like all the furniture and everything, that's when the mom got hurt. But earlier when Linda Blair was sitting up and down really quick in the bed, that was a, she wasn't doing that. There was a, like a board behind her that was doing that to her. And it, oh, hurt it, was, her back. it was flipping her back up and down. Yeah. And that hurt her. Like people were physically hurt on this film. Yeah. Um, oh, especially there was something that I wanted to bring up that I was reading in the trivia where it's uh, Jason Miller had gotten a verbal confrontation with Friedkin after the director fired a gun near his ear to get an authentic oh, yes. reaction. Yeah, from yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like he did. Like all sorts of things that was done on this film would yeah. never, ever be done today. Never, never, never. Um, but this is where you get that head turn scene. And then Reagan speaks in Burke's voice, which really just kind of seals the deal for mom that, yeah. hey, Reagan killed Burke. Yeah. Um, does he say, look what your your C-word daughter did to me? <laughs> yeah, something like that. I know it was, it, it happened so fast and like, I was focused on like the head turning. I was like, holy shit. <laughs> yeah. I think it's, yeah, it's pretty, pretty horrific. Anyway. So I love how they use music cues to fade into other, other scenes in the film. So it's Chris screaming and then it echoes into the bridge meeting between Chris McNeil and father Karras. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so father's shown up in just like a jogging outfit and Chris gives him like a really cold reception because she thinks he's just you know, is it a fanboy? Is it just like a weird guy, whatever? Um, but then she warms up to him when, you know, he uses a cigarette to cigarette to break the ice and everything. And you can see like under her sunglasses and that scar, she's got that giant bruise on the side of her face. Oh yeah. Like she got real oh, messed man. up. Yeah. And she asked if they could just walk and talk and, you know, she, it, you know, it comes to play that he's a friend of Father Dreyer's and everything. And she is kind of prying him. She's like, did, you know, Father Dreyer mentioned the dinner party. And he's like, oh, sure. He, he told me about that. And she's like, did she 
did he mention my daughter? And he's like, no. And she's like really pressing him. And he's like, no, he's like, you know, you know, priests are very tight mouth um, about things. And, and, um, and uh, he, he says, you know, unless it depends on the priest, he's like, but you know, you could pretty much trust me. And then, so Chris is like, uh, do you have to turn in like a murderer if they confess to you? And, you know, uh, and he's like, well, this is like taking a really weird turn. And then she's like, how do you go about getting an exorcism? And this really takes Father Karras back. He's like, well, first I'd have to get you back to the 16th century. Um, he, he's like, it's more about mental illness and paranoia and schizophrenia. And then this is where Chris breaks down and confides that her daughter is the one who needs an exorcism. And this makes him even more take a stance that she just needs to forget about it. It's only going to make things worse. And, you know, on top of that, the church has got to approve it. That takes time. Um, and then he recommends her seeing a psychiatrist. And this is what Chris just like hits a wall. She's like, she's already seen a psychiatrist. Now you're sending me around in circles. He sees how upset she is. He agrees to go back home. The two head upstairs. Um, this is where Reagan's doing that whole like labored breathing thing. And she looks atrocious. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she looks God awful. There's something yeah. clearly, clearly wrong with this little girl. Um, and you see Carl with the ladder, you know, he's coming out of the attic. He's making more comments about the traps and everything. Um, so father Karras tells Reagan that, you know, he's a friend of her mother's and everything. And Reagan asked him to loosen the straps and she admits that she's the devil. And, um, uh, he's like, well, just loose, loosen the straps yourself. And she's like, well, that'd be a very vulgar display of power. And, um, oh, I forgot this earlier in the film, William Freakin actually hired a actual, uh, man on the street who was inebriated to play the altar boy who asked father Damien to help an old altar boy out. That was the line that the man had to deliver. Oh yeah. I heard about that. Yeah. So Reagan repeats this to him, um, in the man's voice. Um, actually though, there was something wrong in production and they had to get the gentleman back to, to refilm his lines to, to like just the words to say him again. But he was so inebriated when he did it, he didn't really believe that that was him or that he had done it. And it took him like eight hours just to get him to do that one line again. Oh, wow. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> um, and then so, you know, Reagan Demon makes the comment that his mom's in here. And, you know, would you like us to leave a message with her and everything? <laughs> and so for proof, Karis is, you know, like, what's her maiden's name? And she won't, you know provide that information, but she does vomit green bile into his face. Yeah. And that, that Which, actually wasn't supposed to hit him in the face. No, he was <laughs> furious about that. <laughs> um, so back in the basement, uh, clearly he's gotten cleaned up and Mrs. McNeil has, you know, done his laundry, his clothes and she's ironing his, you know, sweater and everything. And he's kind of pressing her to uh, ask, answer some questions for him. Um, he's also admiring her artwork and everything. Um, and Chris looks horrible. She just looks like drained of all life. Yeah. She's um, at the end of her rope there, but he's still like insistent that the exorcism would do her way more harm than good. Um, and he would just, it would just make matters worse. Um, he's also still saying that the church is going to want proof about this. They're not just going to go in there and do this. Um, and he's like saying your daughter didn't say she was a demon. She said she was the devil. He's like, that's equivalent to someone saying they're Napoleon. You know, like you just, that's, it's just like, it almost reinforces like the, the crazy spiel. 
Yeah, so um, that's got him thinking that she's more uh, schizophrenic or, you know, there's there's something mentally wrong rather than like demonic possession. Exactly. And I love Chris's counterpoint. She's like, I know my daughter and I know that that thing in that bedroom is not my daughter. Um, like any parent, as any parent would, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, unless you're a parent of a middle schooler. Um, anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then as he's leaving, he's like... Um, did Reagan know a priest was coming over? And uh, she's like, no. And she's like, did, um, and he asks Chris if she knew that his mother had died. And she's like, yes. And she's like, but did Reagan? And she's like, no, not that I know of. So he's leaving to depart. And we see that, uh, no, Detective Kinderman has been kind of spying on the house this whole time. Um, Cause he knows there's something up. He can't quite put his finger on it and everything. Yeah. And then um, we get another, uh, scene of Karis performing mass. And again, he keeps, they keep uh, showing the same lines of dialogue from the mass. It's like the, the breaking of the bread and the, the, the lines about, you know, this is my body, this is my blood. And they keep showing that same kind of uh, loop of dialogue again and again. Um, so back in the room, Reagan is in a padded bed uh, and she gives the quote, the, uh, what an excellent day for an exorcism. And uh, he's kind of asking her, like, why would that, you know, why would that be good? And he's like, it would bring us together. And uh, Karis is thinking that she's referring to her, Reagan, and the demon. And she's like, no, you and I, Um, which the demon is just, you know, spoiler alert, (laughs) being blatantly honest, like what's going to play out. Yeah. It's like, this is how it's going to go down. Exactly. Um, And then the little drawer slides open everything. And, you know, Karis closes it. And he's like, "Uh, do it again. And, you know, the the, uh, demon is like, in time. And it starts speaking in Latin and then it moves on to French. Uh, and he's got a tape recorder, tape recorder going the whole time and everything. Um, he pulls out a bottle of holy water and the, the uh, girl freaks out the side of the holy water and everything. Begins react, reacting violently, uh, writhing around, using multiple voices and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking backwards. What, oh, yes. Yeah, we find that out later on. Exactly. Um, and then outside the room downstairs, uh, Chris is on the phone with someone. She's being very elusive as to what's going on. They don't really ever tell us who that is. As far as I know, I'm wondering if that's the father, maybe. Um, I don't know for sure. I was just always curious who that was. Does it she's tell clearly you... keeping this? Oh, you know what, Rob? I read so long ago, like so long ago. Oh no, um, not the book, but in the, oh, like in the extended cut, maybe. Does oh, it go I, into I that? saw that so long ago too. Oh, I don't know, Rob. Okay. Yeah. I actually really do prefer this one. Um, over the director's cut. Um, I just like this one better. I saw the scene of her walking upside down, down the stairs, and that was pretty freaky. And I do remember that with in the kitchen, when the lights are going off and on, do you remember that in the movie? Yeah, I remember that. So when they go off that same demon face that we were talking about with white, it's like kind of skeletal looking. Oh yeah. They flash that a lot more in the director's cut. Okay. Yeah. It's just like, okay, why? But anyway, um, so after all this, Karis has come downstairs with Chris and, you know, they're kind of having drinks and everything. And this is where he kind of pries a little bit, asking about the father and he finds out, you know, he's in Europe and um, it's revealed that he doesn't know. And, you know, the priest is like, well, he really probably should know about this. Um, And uh, he fills Chris in on the fact that it wasn't holy water. It's just plain old tap water. And he's like, this, doesn't help the case at all. This kind of hurts it 
as far as being a possession. Right. But what about the, I'm thinking, now this wasn't presented in the movie, but when like clearly the daughter doesn't know Latin, the daughter, the daughter might know French, but I doubt that she would know Latin. Um, and then like the, as well as the priest seeing the desks open and, you know, the, the other happenings aside from the holy water thing. Well, at first it was Latin. Some of her stuff was Latin and it did segue into French. And then it started, like you pointed out the backward stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. What was your point? I, I'm sorry. No, I was I, I just saying. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. I, maybe I wasn't uh, the really power clear. of Christ compelled me. Sorry. <laughs> the power of the pod compels you. Right. Um, no, I was wondering. Okay, so the priest knows that unless, like, yes, they're they're clearly affluent, but I don't think that the daughter would learn Latin. I mean, oh, she I would, see what you're saying. She yes, would learn yes, yes, French, yes. maybe, but not Latin because nobody really uses Latin. Um, and so it's like maybe that would help the case, but even though the uh, the holy water thing didn't help the case, you know. Right. Now, you know, as an aside, that I had to take four years of Latin in high school, right? No, I didn't. Know. Well, you were at a Catholic yes. school, right? For priests, for people studying to be priests. Okay, yes. yeah. See, four years of Latin, Rob. Yeah. <laughs> they don't They don't teach that in, um, you know, regular school. <laughs> no, it's pretty much a dead language. Yeah. Um. Anyway. This is also when Chris confides in Karis that Reagan killed Bert Dennings. She's like, she pushed him out her window. So at the cafeteria back on uh, campus, Karis is playing um, Father Dyer, the tape and everything. And this is where, like you said, it's revealed that it's just English in reverse. Mm -hmm. So what she's been saying, some of the lines are like, fear the priest. She's been calling Marin out and uh, I am no one. We get that jump scare with the phone and everything. And then Karis arrives and Sharon greets him in secret. Um, Chris isn't privy to this. Back, oh, back this is where, yeah, this is the, yeah. And the room is freezing cold. You could see their breath and everything. So it was kept at 30 degrees Celsius with four AC units running constantly. Jeez. It was so cold that their breath would sometimes create snow. Are you serious? Yeah. That's what the, yeah, that's what the, some of the. Did the anybody get right. hypothermia? I don't know, but imagine Linda Blair because she was just wearing that like little flimsy nightgown. Right. And she was so young too. Yeah. 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 Um, Anyway, she's called him there because on Reagan's stomach, from the inside out, there's basically something inside her carving the words, help me, that's causing it to raise from her chest. Right. And I'm assuming that that's Reagan. Uh, Reagan. Uh, yeah, I keep wanting to call her Regan. Right. Yeah. And that's where I wrote, there's your fucking proof. There's your proof. <laughs> If that's yes, that that's, demonic possession, I don't know what would be. Right. But it was it was it the demon doing that or was that actually uh you know Reagan doing that from the inside saying Well, it Help doesn't me. matter because that's there's clearly something something not right and yeah. that's not psychological. <laughs> right, this is true. This is true. There's something clearly wrong with this little girl. Um so And she was skinny as hell, too, like emaciated. Yes, yes. So back at the council room, uh, they're still kind of like pressing him, whether it's not a, a, a possession. And he still can't answer for 100 percent 
if it is or not. Yeah. Um, and he says he'll do the exorcism and um, his excellency, his excellency says that he'll provide an assistant. Um, and then the two other priests come up with the decision to send uh, Father Marin, who's currently at Woodstock. Um, he's there to write a book um, and they're feeling rather confident in this because 12 years ago he did perform an exorcism in Africa um, and that they feel that this will be the right choice to uh, help assist with this um, exorcism. So uh, Marin receives message to go and of course does so. Um, he arrives in the infamous uh, fog scene where he gets out of the taxi and just stands for a moment, looks up at the uh, window of the uh, brownstone. Um, we get uh, the bells ringing, which I think is kind of a really cool effect. Um, and you get the Reagan face, like when he shows up, it's just like a close up of her demonic face. It's all scratched up and gnarly and everything. Yeah. Um, and then he enters, the two priests kind of meet, and then you hear Marin. She kind of screams it from like the bedroom up above. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so Marin wants to begin like right away. Uh, he's telling, you know, uh, Damien, avoid conversation. The demon's going to lie to you. It will mix lies with the truth to really confuse you. Um, it's going to be a psychological attack and just don't listen to anything it says. Mm-hmm. Um, downstairs, Karis is trying to con- uh, convey that he believes there's three personalities and Marin shuts that stuff down. He's like, nope, there's just one. <laughs> the, two, <laughs> the two head upstairs to be greeted by a bunch of moaning sounds. Um, they head in and Chris is behind him and they just kind of close the door, shutting her out. It's just the two gentlemen with the uh, possessed girl. Uh, Marin unpacks his possessions. He has a gold crucifix and some holy water. Uh, he's met with a slew of profanities. Uh, Marin counters back with be silent. Uh, the girl begins to moan. Um, uh, this is where she spits that bile, uh, green bile onto his lenses. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, and then he proceeds to do the, our father and he's met with head thrashes and obscene gestures. Um, the priests begin to pray together. Um, and this is where we get the mother, your mother sucks cocks in hell. Yeah. You, faith, you <laughs> because, faithless slime, which is directed towards uh, Karis, not uh, Marin. Yeah, because the, the, the demon is still bringing up his mother. Mm-hmm. I think she feels, in my mind, not she, I think the demon, devil, however you want to look at this, feels that he's the weaker link of the two, clearly because of his his questioning of faith. And mm-hmm. Marin's already done this before. Yeah, and his um, inexperience and everything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the bed's kind of levitating just a little bit. And then the posts begin to bang up and down the floor. Yeah. Um, once they thrust more holy water on, the bed starts to float. Uh, this causes Karis to be very distracted. And he's not giving the responses that he's supposed to be giving in the in the uh, ceremony. Yeah, he's kind of um, just watching. Let's exactly. watch. <laughs> yeah, let's watch. <laughs> I got to admit, I make fun of other people. But in this situation... If I had still remained in the room, it would be a definite less watch moment. Um, so the bed starts to rock. The lights begin to flicker. Uh, we get that really creepy face with the Gene Simmons tongue, like flapping up and down. Yeah. <laughs> Lick me. <laughs> Lick me. Yeah. Right. Right. There's groans. And then she kind of like rests her head to the side and just kind of the vial just like oozes out of her mouth onto this like holy sack, his holy, uh, vestment that he's wearing and everything oh yeah now i didn't think that was that much green bile but wow there there was like more scenes with that than anything oh, it else just oozed right out yeah. yeah um i almost find it more disgusting when it just freely flows as opposed to like 
that projectile stuff. Yeah, when it's just kind of dripping out the mouth. It's disgusting. Yeah. Anyway, so Karis unwisely decides to leave and clean it, which I'm like, you should not be one-on-one with this thing ever. But anyway, so there's kind of like all hell starts to break loose and everything. And so you see that Marin isn't feeling so well. And this causes the demon to start to rejoice mm-hmm. in the fact that things aren't going quite as they had planned. Um, he begins to... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. It's not funny. It really isn't, but I thought it was right. The the demon starts to begin amp starts to amp things up and he he yells out, fucking Karis, which I thought was really funny because <laughs> <laughs> no one would want to have sex with Max von Sydow in that old man makeup. Because <laughs> Max was only like, I think like 40, 44. I mean, he was not an oh, old man at the time. He really, makeup. yeah, he looked like he was in his 70s. I was like, wait a minute. How was this guy able to film Dreamscape? <laughs> right, <laughs> and, right, right, right. You know, if he was in his 70s, you know. Yeah, and then oh, there's man. like all these like massive cracks like in the door and the ceiling. And I'm thinking, Chris is not going to get her to down payment deposit back. Oh, hell no. That house is done. Yeah, it's done. Yeah. Um, and this is where we get the head turn and the creepy face over Reagan's like appears and everything. And then Damien makes the mistake of starting to interact with Reagan. Mm-hmm. And the binds break and the girl rises up into the air. Uh, and the two start chanting the power of Christ compels you again and again. And as they do the holy water, as it hits her body, like cuts begin to appear where it strikes her limbs. Yeah, like um, they look like lacerations. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then she eventually begins to float down and settle back on the bed and everything. And then Karis binds her wrist and then turns his back on her <laughs> to bind her feet, giving her time to sit up and like thonk him on the head with her bound fist. Yeah, that that little that little thing's got some strength. Oh yeah. So he falls to the floor and there's almost like a mini earthquake going on now. And that sends Marin falling back. And then you make, uh, you get the Pazuzu appearance. Um, oh yeah. Where she's doing like the little, the little kind of climbing, climbing yeah, nothing it's like basically. Ba- it's like bat backlit and it's like yeah. really cool looking and everything. Um, and then Karis is still shaken, uh, but he manages to cover Reagan with the blanket and um, the, he admits that he's getting tired. And so Marin heads out, leaving Karis sitting alone on the girl's bed, which again, don't do this. Uh, out in the hallway, the two are sitting there. Marin excuses himself and heads to the bathroom, giving Karis the opportunity to head alone back into the girl's bedroom. Yeah, Once because inside, he sees a vision of his mother, I think. It sitting was, there right? all bound up. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, in the middle of the bed. Um, but then it turns back out to be Reagan. Um, and he, she's been retied back down to the bed somehow. I don't know when that happened. Um, and he starts to wipe her brow. She looks almost blue now. Like her skin tone has changed. Yeah. Uh, it and might be the lighting. And she's very waxy looking. I don't think it's, I think they've purposely done this. I don't think it's the lighting. Like, I think like makeup, they've done this because she almost looks clammy now. Okay. And the, it, like, remember the, she had like dry lips. They were all cracked. And then like the, the cuts on her face uh, and they yeah. kind of look yeah. almost, they look not worse, but not better either. Like, it's, I, I like a diff- it's like she's progressed to a different state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And now she's mimicking, you know, Damien's mother's voice and everything. And he starts again, interacting with her screaming, you're not my mother. 
Um, and he goes to check her heart and clearly she's not doing well physically. And Marin has come back into the room and, um, uh, he asked her about medication. You know, I'm sorry. He asked Marin questions, cares about medication. He's like, if I give her more medication, she's going to go into a coma. Um, and then this is where Marin feels that the demon is starting to get to Karis and he sends Karis out um, of the room, leaving himself to go it alone with the demon. And I wrote mm. down dumbass. Dumbass. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. But I wonder, did he do this by himself before? So he feels confident that he doesn't need assistance. I think he was the only one yeah, well, we're Africa. led to believe. Yeah, that's what we're led yeah, to yeah, believe. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So he gets out his, you know, he gets out his his uh gimmicks again, his little crucifix and holy water, and he crosses himself and begins sprinkling her with holy water, which causes more growls and everything. And he kneels at her bedside and starts as our father and everything. So downstairs we get an interaction between Chris and Karis, and she's like, you know, is it over? Is she gonna die? Which imagine being the mother and you're just hearing this stuff downstairs. I mean, it would be terrifying. I would think, uh, and he's like, no, she's not going to die. And he heads back upstairs. Cause he's like, you know, we're going to, we're going to see this thing through. He's mm -hmm. going to save her. So downstairs at the worst time ever, the doorbell rings and we see through the chain door that it's detective Lieutenant Kinderman upstairs. Damien finds Marin slumped over dead and Reagan is curled up kind of like in a little, not fetal position. She's just got kind of her knees drawn up and she's giggling at like what's transpired since Karis has left Marin alone. Um, he unsuccessfully tries to perform CPR on the dead priest's body. The girl's giggling provokes him to flip out in anger. He grabs her, pins her to the floor, starts punching her, eventually chokes her. Um, and then he starts screaming, take me. Yeah. His, his face kind of quivers. Uh, his eyes start to change into the color that Reagan's eyes were when she was possessed. She starts crying in a voice of a little girl, her own voice, not a demonic voice and everything. We realize that he's possessed and he flings himself out the window. Um, Chris and the Lieutenant enter to find Reagan bawling and kind of curled up into the corner. Kinderman looks out the window. There's a crowd that's formed below. Um, <clears throat> Father Dreyer has arrived on the scene just in time to kind of uh, hear Damien's last confession. Damien is almost in the same position that Burke would have been in. His head's kind of twisted around, but he's able to squeeze Dreyer's hand in response to his questions about the confession and everything and yeah. absolving him of his sins. Um, from overhead, we see a cop car and ambulance have arrived. Um, the next day, we see Sharon packing things up. Uh, they decide to part ways. She no longer is going to be in the employment of Miss McNeil, who's getting herself ready to leave with her gloves and her cape, capelet and her cap. Um, Carl's loading up the car. Um, clearly Willie and Carl are going to stay back. I don't know if they're going to join her later, but they're staying back and packing. Um, Father Dreyer has come. He's standing outside the gray, uh, the gray stone. He sees the, uh, mother daughters begin to depart. He approaches. This is where, um, um, Chris mentions that Sharon found this medallion and a chain in the girl's room. And um, no, I'm sorry. That's a lie. Sharon gives the medallion chain to Chris and says she found it in the girl's room. I'm sorry. Yeah. Sorry about that. Okay. And yeah, see, yeah. that's what made me think that it had been there the whole time. But I think you're right that Father Marin probably had that with him. That's my person. thinking. Yes. Okay. But I'm going to expand on that real quick. Okay. 
So the, and then the conversation with the priest and everything. And um, Chris reveals that, you know, Reagan remembers nothing about it all, but Reagan is standing there with her mother during this kind of conversation. And she spies the collar on father dryer. And she kind of reaches up and gives him a hug and like a little peck on the, a little kiss on the cheek. Um, so they get into the car, car with Carl and he drives away, but all of a sudden the car backs up and Chris reaches out and she gives him the uh, medallion that they was found upstairs. And she says that she thought that he would want to have this. Um, we see Dreyer kind of walking back to where everything, the incidents took place. The window's now been boarded up and he looks down at the stairwell where, you know, father Harris and Burke both lost their lives. Um, and we get a hint, a small hint of tubular bells, but then the um, strings start and the end credits begin to roll. Yeah. Now, now, I always assumed that she gave Dreyer the chain because she thought it belonged to Father Karras. I think, though, that it was Marin's because it came with him from Iraq, I think. And I wonder if he didn't bring it because, like he said, evil fights evil. And that was just like an extra in his mind, like it was like an extra like insurance against like like to help him win. Maybe so. Yeah, because now see, my thinking was that somehow whatever Marin found in Iraq made its way to like the brownstone and, and that's how the possession occurred. But then it's more. It's more apparent that uh, it was carried on the person of Marin, like you were saying, because like, how the hell would it get there and, you know, causing that possession to occur? So it was like, yeah. And I'm trying to really remember, I don't believe there's any scenes with Karis wearing it. I don't believe. No, I didn't see any. All we saw was he was holding it at the beginning of the film. Um. And then the clock stopped and, you know, then there was that whole thing. Yeah. I, so I really don't think I, I just, I just feel it's Marin's. I could be totally wrong. I'm sure there are people screaming at me. Um, I, but I just feel that it is. Yeah. Who, who else could have had it though? You know, it's. Yeah. I mean, as far as it being Karis's, I don't think it was Karis's. I really think it was Marin's. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we could be wrong, but from, from what I saw in the movie, Basically, like when he's holding it and, you know, they're doing that little explanation thing, he probably is the only one who had it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I guess just really quick, we probably should make mention that the voice of the demon was performed by Mercedes McCambridge, um, who apparently uh, had had issues with uh, alcohol and had given it up. And um, she went back to drinking just for this role to get that sound with her voice and she uh, I think she may have even given up smoking and she starts smoking again um, but she also asked to have some priest friends be on set with her when she would record the voices um, so it was kind of like a major deal for her to do this oh, wow. um, and then there was kind of a little bit of a controversy she, um, was not originally credited at all in the film um, for having anything to do with it And then when um, Linda Blair was nominated uh, for an Oscar for her performance, uh, Mercedes claimed that she had never said she didn't want to be um, 
her name taken or kept out of the film that she that this was something freaking did on his own. And it was a big like threat of a lawsuit and everything. And then she actually had her name put back in the credits. It was kind of a big deal. But yeah, definitely Mercedes McCambridge should be mentioned for her participation in the film because she was the voice of the demon. So, yeah. Now, having said all that, Rob, (laughs) (laughs) what do you think of the film? I still enjoy it. It doesn't feel like a 70s film, honestly. It's, uh, no. it, it feels like it could have been made in the 80s. Uh, it's actually, there's not a whole lot of effects, but the makeup, the practical effects are really great. And it feels like it holds up to this day. I mean, it's still jarring. It's psychological. It really pulls you in different directions. I mean, it's it's good at doing what it does. Mm-hmm. Now, as creature uh, cast listeners, would you recommend it to them? Yeah, I would. Um, but I'd say, you know, <laughs> know what you're getting into, because if you're unless you're completely desensitized to a lot of things that this will disturb you greatly. Yeah, it's now, uh, it's very psychological. And I think what you have to be aware of coming to it now in 2023 is this was the first real possession film that kind of set everything else into motion. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. Cause uh, that I know of anyway, there's, there were no other films that came before it, but there were a whole slew of films that came after it. Right. This kind of set the standard, the bar for, mm-hmm. you know, demon possession films, what you would see in them. Yeah. You know, the levitating, the bones cracking, the profanity, the vomiting, the walking, the, the contorting. <laughs> yeah. 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 All that stuff stemmed from this pretty much for the most part, or as far as mainstream audiences knew. Yeah. Now, as far as me, I love this movie. I've always loved this movie. Um, I still find it horrifying just as I did back then. The actual thought of this happening would be terrifying, uh, especially in a parent situation like dealing with this with your daughter would just be horrifying, I feel. Uh, Or child, not daughter, like child, son, daughter, either way. Um, I totally recommend it to to monster fans. I mean, this is an iconic creature. Mm, you know, the, yes. the possessed child. This um, goes in the pantheon that it really does. Yeah. There's uh, the practical effects. I still feel are top notch. Um, so impressive. I, me, I'm always a little like uh, uh, confounded when people say that it's um, not scary or they find it funny. Um, now my grandmother, my grandmother actually went to go see this. My grandmother of all people. And she said she laughed the whole way through it. Um, everything just completely hysterical. Really? Um, yeah. Um, but I, I just find it terrifying. Um, but I you know everyone's different. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I just can't imagine laughing through this. <laughs> no. And especially co- like considering the history that I have with this, you know, the TV spots and everything else where it, it still disturbs me to this day. So mm-hmm. yeah, there is that. J- I, just like, Taking it as, as what it would be like if this did happen, mm-hmm. how how awful that would be to deal with. But anyway, yeah. Um, so yeah, I totally recommend it to this day. I, I if someone asked me to show them like a horror movie that I thought would scare them, I would put this on. Oh yeah, uh, the, this will do, like I said, unless you're completely desensitized to like a lot of stuff, 
this will just hit you from all angles. I feel it's so very visceral. Mm hmm. Yes. Yes. Well, um, I feel that I've said what I wanted to say about this wonderful movie, in my opinion. Do you have anything else you want to add? No, I think uh, pretty much both of us have said our piece. All right. Then I guess we're going to follow this with another classic of the genre. Next week, we will be doing Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park from 1978. Mm, yeah, we're still we're still in 70s for a while. We are, which I would live there my whole life. But, uh, yeah, so uh, we hope you'll join us for that one. And if you want to reach us, we are always on Instagram. I'm lurking around there at Midnight Mass Creature Cast. Yep. And if you want to send us an email, we can be reached at mmccpod at gmail.com. And, and we always, from the bottom of our dark little hearts, we appreciate you joining us because the more the scarier. Mm -hmm. And until next time, may you stay spooky. Ooh. <laughs>